Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we're talking about America's neighbor, 90 miles to the south. The recent topic of much conversation and consternation, but regardless of your opinion on the matter, undoubtedly a land of opportunity. I'm talking about Cuba. And to talk with us through this watershed moment in U.S.-Cuban relationships, joining me in the studio is Dr. Stephanie Opperman, an assistant professor of Latin American and Caribbean history at Georgia College. Just in December 2015, she traveled to Cuba as party to a contingent seeking to open learning opportunities between academic institutions in the U.S. and Cuba. Dr. Stephanie Opperman, welcome to Georgia College Connections. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we appreciate you very much in giving us this time today. And I understand before we get started that there's actually, you have a, another announcement having to do with my introduction. Uh, tell us, what is this news? The Georgia College Program for Latin American and Caribbean Studies has just added a new title onto the end of it. So I am now the program coordinator for the Georgia College Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino Latina Studies Program. And the reason that this is significant is because we are trying to be more inclusive to Latino, Latina populations at Georgia College or people interested in learning more about them. So very excited to have that program name changed. Well, very excellent. And it sounds like just an effort to try to include some of the people into the history uh, that we uh, teach here on the campus. Absolutely. Working towards diversity and also making sure student groups like the Latino Student Association uh, feel like they are represented and have a place within the, the academic offerings on campus. Very good. I'm glad to hear that as, as part of the larger efforts to be more inclusive here at the university. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, uh, we are going to talk about uh, something that is a, a little bit different from you know, the day-to-day -day life here in Milledgeville, and I'm sure it will be very exciting for, for many people to, to hear about and after hearing possibly to dream about. <laughs> and maybe soon those dreams will be possible um, for coming true. But we're here to talk about Cuba. And of course, I think in the news recently, uh, we've heard a lot about this thaw in relations. I mean, for many people our age, I'm sure this is a once in a lifetime you know, opportunity to learn more about these two countries. And I thought we'd start our conversation off by just talking about this current state of relations. What's going on between Cuba and the U.S. today? Lots of things, which is what's very exciting about this. So in 2008, President Obama went to his first administration. That's also the time when Raul Castro was officially elected to be the leader of Cuba. And so these two individuals and the you know sort of parties behind them have made significant strides towards wanting to improve relations. I think Raul Castro's decision to open up politically just a little bit with things like setting term limits for people in positions of leadership, with trying to increase wages, just doing little tweaks and changes to things from the Fidel Castro regime that most people I think are a little bit more familiar with, has kind of signaled to President Obama and to people around the world his openness to consider changing the course of Cuban history a little bit. And I think it's just that, that window that President Obama and his administration have gotten excited about and so they've had a series of conversations 
Pope Francis helped to organize a couple of secret conversations between the two of them when they were first getting started. And then as they got to know each other a little bit more, they could have these conversations a little bit more publicly. And so it's just a really exciting time to watch and see as these two countries acknowledge that they're in a different place politically than they both were um, in the 1960s when the freeze uh, really started to happen and to try to work towards what the future might look like and how different that might be. So we have this situation in which we have changes in administration at both in Cuba and here in the United States. But it is a change that is almost 50 years plus in the coming. Were there anything else um, about maybe larger geopolitical trends or um, you know, things in our country uh, that have led us to this precipice? That's a really great question. I definitely think the, the Bush administration also you know, was interested in building better relations with Cuba. In fact, I think, you know, most administrations have always maintained that interest. It's just specifically working with someone with the last name of Castro in Cuba that I think has been a little challenging for some people. I think uh, most of our previous presidents were hoping that all sort of Castros would be out of government before they would consider reopening relations. But I, I, you know, I really, I have to applaud the initiative that both countries are taking to realize that the, the economic situation in Cuba needs improvement. And the economic embargo that the U.S. has against Cuba is really taking a toll that, as you mentioned, has been going on for 60 plus years. And is that still necessary? It was done as a punitive action originally. Is that still how we want to treat our neighbors or are we open to other types of relationships with them? Those are some of the questions we're grappling with. (laughs) And we've talked about people leading these countries. What about uh, the man and woman on the street? Uh, Are the people ready for these changes to happen? Definitely. Um, At least from what I saw in my trip to Cuba, everybody was very excited if they could hear us. You know, I was with some colleagues and if they could hear us speaking English, they'd walk by. Are you from the United States? You know, yay, President Obama. Um, We happened to be there on the one year anniversary of the normalization of relations they had a parade and a celebration that went along with that. So I definitely think two things. First, I think just in a general sense, this kind of confirms that with Raul Castro, things are starting to change and that there's optimism that this will be one of, of many more things to come. And then the second thing would be that Cuban Americans, I think, are a little conflicted about what's happening. I think they definitely want to see a normalization of relations with Cuba. They want to start reconnecting culturally, politically, economically with their home nation. But I think a lot of them are hesitant in that, again, specifically related to the Castro regime. I think that to some Cuban Americans, President Obama working with Raul Castro and or Fidel Castro is a signal that he's not addressing the fact that there are still political problems in Cuba, that there still are human rights violations and things of that nature that need to be addressed. So it is a little bit of a mixed bag, but I think overall the majority of people are hopeful that that any of these sort of normalization efforts will lead to better life for everybody down the road. Well, we've come now to a time when we're going to take a short break, but if you're just joining us, we're talking about the state of relations between the U.S. and Cuba on Georgia College Connections. In the studio with me today, my guest is Dr. Stephanie Opperman. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Ojalá que las hojas no te toquen el cuerpo cuando caigan Para que no las puedas 
convertir en cristal Ojalá que la lluvia deje de ser milagro que baja por tu cuerpo Ojalá que la luna pueda salir sin ti Ojalá que la tierra no te bese los pasos Ojalá se te acabe la mirada constante La palabra precisa la son Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we are talking about the state of relations between Cuba and the United States. We're joined by Dr. Stephanie Opperman of the Georgia College History Department. So we're talking about Cuba and the U.S. And in that last segment, we were talking about kind of where we are now after 50 years of a static relationship in the last two years. The doors have been flung open and we're marching bravely into a new world of relations between Cuba and the U.S. And I think for many um, casual viewers, that's kind of where we are right now. There's more to come, but that road has already been taken and that's the path we're on. But as I was researching before our conversation, and as we were talking about during the break, there actually is another kind of a pit stop on this road to normalized relations. And that's the status of Cubans who have come to the United States seeking haven from what many people know to be a repressive regime in Cuba. There's a change in what is called the Cuban Adjustment Act. And I guess for people who've never heard of this before, uh, maybe they've seen it in the movies or you know heard about it um, popularly. Uh, what is this Cuban Adjustment Act and what is the brewing contention that's starting now? Mm -hmm. The Cuban Adjustment Act came out of the Cold War climate. President Johnson at the time, once he sort of realized that military action by the United States in Cuba was not going to change the Cuban government, he wanted to offer a sort of safe haven for any what he considered to be political refugees who felt unsafe or uh, just didn't agree with the, the communist regime that was growing in Cuba to be able to come to the United States easily and to sort of move to the front of the line with immigration. And so that has been in place, the Cuban Adjustment Act, since the 1960s. It has definitely been a cause of contention, uh, particularly in relation to other Latin American countries who feel for various reasons that they are also uh, either political or economic refugees who are trying to get into to the U.S. as a safe haven. What is really intriguing about all of this are, are two things. One, you know, just immigration is such a huge topic in general right now. And so what many people see is the, the preferential treatment of Cuban applicants versus other Latin American and Caribbean applicants has always had a bit of contention. But the new part that's added into it right now is that with the normalizing of relations, there is a fear among Cubans that this sort of special privilege or right or recognition of, you know, sort of the hardships in Cuba that are causing people to migrate might go away. And because of that, if there are people who still live in Cuba who have an interest in coming to the United States and sort of felt like, well, when the time is right or when it's safest to travel or things like that, I will are now finding themselves worried that privilege will be taken from them. And so once that happens, they will be in line with all of the other immigrants. And, you know, as anyone who, who studies immigration or reads the newspaper knows, those lines can be very long. They can take, you know, 10 to 20 years to get all your paperwork in order. And so, you know, having this opportunity to go to the front of the line is, I think, inspiring a lot of people to migrate right now. 
Mm. And I just want to make sure for our audience members that um, uh, this is privilege is that if you actually are able to make it to the United States, however which way, you're kind of fast-tracked for a legal immigration status here. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, I think, you know, most of us can, can remember looking and seeing newspaper articles or photographs mm. of people coming over in rafts or just sort of makeshift boats. Um, you know, it's 90 miles uh, from Cuba to Key West. And so many people over, you know, several generations have migrated as any sort of makeshift way that they can because they know that even though the journey will be treacherous, if they can just get to the United States and put in their application, if they can live here for one year legally, then they can apply to become a legal resident. And one thing I want to mention here is that, I mean, we are such close neighbors that literally people have swam between these two Islands, shall we say? Absolutely. When we took the trip uh, last December, we flew from Miami to Havana, and it's a you know it's a forty minute flight. It's twice as long from Miami to Atlanta as it is from Miami to Havana, and so just keeping that perspective of how close it is 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 important. One of the fears of the change of this immigration process, shall we say, with this Cuban Adjustment Act, is that as uh, this comes to pass one way or the other. Uh, it may unleash a large wave of people wanting to just go ahead and take that risk. And that is one of the things that you know, is very touchy at this moment, especially with the heightened you know, conversation about immigration just as it is. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there is a, a pattern of this. I mean, in the 1959 revolution and in the years immediately after that, there was a huge wave of people who came over. Um, it's been pretty regular and steady since then. As people found themselves in, you know, political crisis or speaking out against or having different beliefs from the government, um, dealing with economic struggles that just became too intense. So there have been these different waves. And then in 1980, there was a a major movement with the Mariel Boatlift as a, a huge following opened up. President Carter had said, we'll let anyone in who wants to come and we'd like to bring boats and, and, you know, transport the people ourselves and uh, Fidel Castro said, okay, go for it. And so it was just a huge movement of people in a very short amount of time uh, to the point where President Carter eventually had to say, actually, this is this is a little too much to take all at once. It was very contentious at the mm-hmm. time. Absolutely. As well. Yeah, this has always mm-hmm. been a, a hot, hot topic. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd also like to say that this highlights that there have historically been very close relationships between the United States and Cuba. Could I ask that we back up? prior to the revolution and maybe talk about some of the relationships between Cuba and the U.S. predating uh, what has been the status quo for many of our lifetimes. Absolutely. So the close proximity of Cuba has meant that U.S. administrations have always had an eye on it. Cuba was a Spanish colony up until 1898. It was the last colony that Spain had in the Western Hemisphere, and they did not want to let go of it because of its geopolitical location and also because of its huge sugar production and the, the money that would come from that. Once it was determined that Spain <laughs> was going to be out, that the people of Cuba were going to, to fight for their independence, the United States was very quick to jump on board and to, to offer support militarily, um, economically, politically, whatever they needed to help get Spain you know, sort of out of the Western Hemisphere. This is a separate conversation about the goals that it met for U.S. officials, but it started a relationship between the United States and Cuba. What was challenging about it is that once Spain left Cuba, U.S. administrators really wanted to make sure, um, this is under Theodore Roosevelt, that Cuba would stay economically and politically stable. And so in order to do that, they 
enforced the inclusion of what's known as the Platt Amendment into the Cuban Constitution, which said that at any point, if it looked like Cuban politics or the Cuban economy was getting out of hand, that the United States had the right to enter and intervene militarily. This did not sit well with many Cubans, but they were excited about their independence. They wanted to continue moving forward with, you know, developing themselves as an independent nation. And so eventually they agreed to include this amendment. That is very symbolic, I think, of the relationship that they've had since then. It's always sort of been understood that the United States presidential administration at the time was going to be keeping an eye on Cuba. And if things got a little too out of hand, that it was understood that the U.S. military would intervene. The Platt Amendment wasn't revoked until FDR in the 1930s. Um, That was part of his good neighbor policy as we're building up towards World War and sort of wanting to make sure uh, we've got everyone in the hemisphere on our side. But because of specifically the 1898 Spanish-American War, which again, it's Cuba's War of Independence, but it's called the Spanish-American War, coupled with the inclusion of the Platt Amendment, has always led at least some groups in Cuba to really resent the United States presence. Throughout the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, there were several leaders in place in Cuba who wanted to maintain positive relations with the United States. And so if the United States asked for special economic privileges or things like that, they always seemed to get it. Tourism became huge. Lots of people traveled to Cuba in this time period, particularly to Havana, but also to the beaches. But most of the hotels and the businesses were owned and operated by Americans in there. You know, if you've seen The Godfather Part Two, you know, they're just, it's all American businessmen and or the mafia who are down there sort of scooping up all of these business ventures and, and making the profit for themselves, not giving it back to the Cuban economy. So I mention all of this because it's a buildup towards the 1959 revolution, where on the one hand, you have, you know, a significant sort of close relationships, keeping in close contact between political figures, economic figures, cultural figures. Um, you think of Desi Arnaz and I Love Lucy, you know, sort of all these things are connected in some way. But on the other hand, there's an underlying animosity on the part of Cubans that even up until the 1959 revolution, many Cubans did not feel like they had a sense of independence or a sense of their own nation. And so when they did decide to to break with the revolution, they wanted it to be big and impactful. They wanted to send a very strong message to the United States. And then once the revolution happens, the United States' administrations are frustrated. And so they want to send a very big message back to Cuba. So that's one way this revolution turned so huge <laughs> in a big geopolitical way. Well, I'm sure it just feels like during that first part of the 20th century was the breaking of the yoke of one colonizer and the taking on of another in certain aspects of you know society and, and culture and life in general. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take another short break right now, but if you're just joining us, we're talking about Cuba and U.S. relationships, the past, the present, and the future here on Georgia College Connections. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Opperman, and I hope you'll stay tuned as we continue on with the conversation. (laughs) 
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Opperman, and we're talking about the relationship between Cuba and the United States. As I said in my introduction, uh, Dr. Opperman traveled to Cuba in December 2015 as a part of a party that was interested in opening up learning opportunities between academic institutions in the U.S. and Cuba. It is also, of course, a, a longstanding interest of yours. So in that last segment, we were talking about just a little bit about the relationship between U.S. and Cuba in the run-up to the Cuban Revolution. I thought that in this segment we would just start right from there and talk about the very run-up um, and some of those flashpoints that happened for and during the Cuban Revolution and, and talk a little bit more about revolutionary Cuba. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So Fidel Castro, I think, is a, is a good place to start. Um, there had definitely been dissent with the Batista regime, that was sort of the last president who had U.S. support, who was in power up until 1959, uh, really had left Cuba pretty high and dry economically. Politically, a lot of dissidents didn't feel like they had a voice. And so Fidel Castro was among a small group of lawyers and students who decided to, to actively protest and to move beyond that to actively try to strike against the Batista regime. Um, they had an attack on the Moncada barracks that was unsuccessful, but it was on the 26th of July. And so they adopted their name, the 26th of July movement after that, and sort of always wanting to remember having the, the gumption to, to attack on that first effort. And well, one thing that mm -hmm. I thought was interesting, and I was reading as I was uh, researching for this interview, but um, Fidel had tried to attack the administration legally before actually taking up arms against them. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. They had tried to go through the appropriate channels, and in part that was to see if there was a legal way to do it, but legal coups don't actually work out very often. So it was an also sort of a publicity event and just sort of spreading the word that there is this group that's trying to oust this, this leader that most people agree is not very good. And so that helped to get him support when it came time for the military attack. And that was just so interesting to me that he would announce his intentions like that, which, uh, in my opinion, is almost a act of bravery on uh, par with the actual taking up of arms because, I mean, you're making yourself a target, especially if the regime is as oppressive as you're saying it mm -hmm. is, uh, to go and try to use the legal mechanisms to announce your intentions to overthrow the government, I'm sure is not making you a fan base. Um, <laughs> right, abso absolutely. Side. And after the Moncada Barrack attack, fails, uh, he's arrested. And when he goes to stand trial, he gives a very famous speech that only a small portion of Cuba heard at the time. It has kind of grown um, as history revealed itself. But the name of the speech was History Will Absolve Me. And in that speech, Castro makes a strong point of saying, these are all the challenges that we face as Cubans right now. And whatever it is I'm doing, whether it makes sense or not, in the end, I really think history is going to absolve me for it because I'm working towards a better good. So that's going to become one of the sort of creeds or, you know, sort of major documents of the Cuban Revolution as it moves forward. And on that note, I mean, obviously history is still being written on um, the Castros um, and, you know, on the revolution. Uh, do you think that history will absolve uh, Fidel Castro? <laughs> I think uh, obviously um, having this conversation here in America, there's probably a very different idea about that than one that would be held in Cuba and, you know, uh, possibly in other areas of Latin America. And then if we think about it in the global aspect. Mm -hmm. No, nope, that's a really great question. And, and it is a challenging one to answer. 
as part of this early, you know, sort of revolutionary movement, he actually fled to Mexico City, and there's where that's where he met Ernesto Che Guevara, and then so Che comes back with Fidel, and and they try to attack again. They I mean, that was have... a very long campaign as well, because the the revolution, if you looked at some of those earlier parts, it spanned about six years or mm-hmm. so. Am I yep. right? Yeah, no, there's definitely a you know a significant fighting period, but through that, it's mostly guerrilla warfare. Fidel and Che are in the mountains. They go to villages. They start talking to people there and asking them, what would you like to see different? What would you like improved in the country? In a way, that's to garner support, but in a way, that's also still their most idealistic time where they're just thinking, okay, if we can reinvent the wheel and make it exactly what we want it to be, what can we do that's going to help the most people in Cuba? So it's a very sort of idealistic, rosy sort of image that they start out with. Once they are able to successfully, you know, sort of oust Batista, take over the regime, Castro is in place as the leader, it becomes much more complicated. It's a very mixed bag. They have a lot of social experiments and social ideas they want to do. Um, they don't have very much money. The country is somewhat in ruins. Batista didn't leave things in a good, you know, sort of economic place. And they're in the midst of a huge geopolitical chaos that comes with the Cold War at the time. So they're working within a lot of limitations. Having said that, there are some things like free health care, free education, um, that really do you know benefit society, improve everyone's way of life. But there are a lot of other things that, that don't. Um, economic challenges continue. I mean, they're pervasive. Cuba is an export uh, economy. They need buyers. They need, they go through a phase where they feel like we need to diversify beyond sugar and then that doesn't work. And then they think, okay, then we just need to grow as much sugar as we possibly can. That doesn't actually work either as far as having enough money to sustain all of these social programs. And coupled with all of that and, you know, sort of part of the Cuban Communist Party theory is that they need everyone to be on the same page. And to be on the same page, they need you to agree to their political reign to the economic conditions that they're changing in society, and to their vision of what the ideal socialist man or woman should be like. And so anyone who doesn't fit that mold suddenly finds themselves in a pretty scary situation. And however idealistic you want to make (laughs) his intentions of wanting to shape this society, the reality is, you know, significant, you know, human repression, human rights violations, and things like that, which force a lot of people to leave. Well, there are a few times when a revolutionary can actually hold power. You know, the revolution is one thing, but governing is completely a different one. And if we go back to that question about uh, history absolving mm-hmm. um, Castro, I mean, we can look at, at least in the popular um, aura around Che Guevara. I mean, you know, you don't, it's very uncommon for you to see the kind of stenciled uh, effigy of, of uh, Fidel Castro around, whereas uh, Che Guevara has these very romantic connotations mm-hmm. all over the place. I mean, major motion pictures uh, made about him and his very romantic figure. I, I'm not sure that uh, Fidel will ever get that mm-hmm. uh, kind of legacy. No, right. Notoriety. <laughs> no, it's true. And, you know, for Che, one of his jobs, essentially, was to take revolution and to make it sexy, to spread it around the world and to encourage other Latin American countries, other Caribbean nations. He also traveled to Africa and was, you know, trying to get revolution moving there. He was young, he was attractive, and he was very enthusiastic about what he was doing. And so 
that was one of his main objectives. And so I think that sort of helped with this myth about him, coupled with the fact that he died at a young age under, you know, sort of unpleasant circumstances trying to start a revolution. And I'm not sure, I don't know, but I'm not sure that if Che had been there through all the different social experimentation processes in the 60s, but then into the 70s, into the 80s, into the 90s, if that sort of image of him would have would have held up over time. Yes, I, I think very many corollaries uh, um, with the young revolutionaries, whether their revolution be political or art, um, uh, very much so. And one thing, we're about out of time in this segment, but one thing that I, I noted in my research uh, now is that you know this revolution was very attractive to very many people. And in fact, um, one of the military leaders in the Cuban Revolution was actually an American. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, the Cuban Revolution was experimenting with communism and social changes in the heart of the Cold War, in the heart of a time where the United States military and its presidential administrations were really trying to sort of secure or lock up the Western Hemisphere to try to create as many pro-capitalist, pro-democratic mirror images of the United States as it could in order to withstand, you know, the the communist threat coming from the Soviet Union and from China. And so it would try to encourage people to do this naturally when that didn't work. The military often came in. This is in both Latin America and Caribbean nations. And so the fact that Cuba was in the midst of all of that and withstood U.S. military pressure and did these experiments anyway uh, was really sort of a, a beacon of, of hope and of interest for a lot of other Latin American and Caribbean nations that, that were, were trying to do the same or at least dreaming about doing the same. And on that note, uh, we'll break for this segment. Um, but if you're just joining us, we're talking about the state of U.S. and Cuba relations here on Georgia College Connections. My guest is Dr. Stephanie Opperman uh, from the Georgia College History Department. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. My guest today, if you're just joining in, is Dr. Stephanie Opperman, and we're talking about the relationship between Cuba and the United States, uh, where it has been, where it is, and where it is going. And early on in the conversation, I mentioned that you had recently traveled to Cuba. I'm very jealous, uh, I just must <laughs> say. Um, but I thought that I, I'd start off this segment by talking about this idea that I commonly hear in relationship to traveling to Cuba in this um, path to normalization of the relationship between our two countries. And that is that you better go to Cuba fast because it's going to be changing and you're really going to miss out on something. And although I myself can buy into that idea, it also to me kind of bespeaks this kind of Cuba is a, a place in our minds 
and we romanticize this place very highly, but that may not be something real for Cubans, and it may not be something real at all. So I thought I'd just start off by asking you about your trip and in that kind of context. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your mind frame as you were going there. All right, absolutely. Well, the trip that I took was sponsored by the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges. Three different university professors organized the trip to be a faculty development program. Dr. Steve Elliott Gower at Georgia College was one of the original organizers of it. So Shout out to Steve. Thanks, Steve. Um, <laughs> and so the trip was designed to bring 20 different professors, all from different academic institutions, all with different academic fields, to Cuba to sort of meet Cuban scholars and to hear their perspective on what the 21st century <laughs> is like for them, uh, what challenges they're facing, what opportunities they see, and things of that nature. And so we didn't know each other before we met on the trip. When we all got to the airport in Miami, you could tell we were very excited to, to go. We've all been wanting to do this for a while. Um, we knew this was a rare opportunity to get to travel and to get to see Havana in particular. That's where we stayed for the week. And as we got there, you know, even on the plane, we're all talking about this once in a lifetime opportunity. We get to see it before it changes. And as a historian, you know, I, I admit that's that's a very compelling part. We've heard stories for so long um, there have been not too many economic changes, which means there haven't been a lot of structural changes, right? We all know about the classic cars that are still in Cuba. The architecture has stayed the same. So in a way, it can feel like it's frozen in time from our perspective, whereas in Cuba, they feel like they've gone through lots of different rounds of, of social changes. So we all had that sort of feeling going in. But as we got there and as we listened to the Cuban scholars talking about the economic and political changes they wanted to make, mostly the economic changes, it's a little harder for them to talk about political changes um, because that's still the, the environment that is in Cuba. But with the economic changes, they are very excited about bringing tourism in. They know that that's going to be a, a good moneymaker for them, U.S. tourism specifically. They do have people from Canada and Europe and everywhere else in the world goes to visit, but U.S. tourism would, would significantly increase their GDP um, because there's so much U.S. interest in going, because it's such an easy flight, things like that. And as they were talking about it and talking about wanting to, you know, develop hotels on these pristine beaches and, you know, wanting to you know, up their um, number of ports that will take cruise ships and expand their airport and all these things. We were all kind of thinking, oh, like that's going to be so sad when it's so different. We kind of like the sort of quaintness. And then you'd have other people come in and talk about how they're considering drilling for oil in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's like, oh, that's environmentally risky and maybe you shouldn't do that. And anyway, at some point over the course of the trip, it got to the point where we just had to say, you know what? <laughs> shut up. <laughs> this is a group of people on an island who have been, you know, just trying to make ends meet, who have had economic hardships for a while. We've had the luxury of trial and error with oil drilling, with tourism, with all kinds of things that they haven't had the chance to experiment with yet. And so I think as far as Cubans go, most of them are are just really excited for for what's next. And change is okay. Well, and I think that's a very tourism mindset for a part of us Americans. I mean, we want to go there and have this almost, you know, mid-20th century experience over there. 
But, you know, we also want to get on the plane ride home at the end of the day and go back to the air conditioning and, you know, that 2015 Chevy Malibu that mm-hmm. we have as opposed to, you know, the fun 1953 Chevy Bel Air that we got to ride in, you know, for $25. Right. And it's really interesting, too. We were talking to a group of economists there who are working on ecotourism in Cuba and sort of having that be their major push, their major drive. Uh, They're hoping to have, you know, one third of Cuba marked as a national forest by 2020. They're creating national biospheres and really trying to protect this environment that until now, you know, hasn't been overrun with all-inclusive resorts or, you know, that type of thing, um, just to sort of maintain some of the natural beauty of Cuba. And a lot of us are really excited about that. Um, There are definitely some people who would prefer the all-inclusive in Cuba and is waiting for that to show up. And so, again, these are these are decisions that the Cubans are going to make. And and I have no doubt that the the tourism interest will will continue whichever direction they take it in. I mean, it is incredible how many people are excited right now about the possibility of going. Mm -hmm. I count myself amongst them. Um, well, let's keep it with um, just kind of the academic sense of your mm-hmm. trip down there and you know, the conversations about what we might learn from one another as um, these academic inroads are opened up. Absolutely. So this initiative, again, it was started by three scholars in the United States who had their finger on the pulse and realizing that with the opening up of relations, there's also you know the opening up of academic relations as well. And a lot of people in Havana and different, you know, universities in Cuba are just as excited about dialogue and exchange with, you know, U.S. academic institutions. Another example is that, you know, these institutions have been inviting university presidents from the United States to come down and to see what kind of resources and research opportunities and also opportunities for students and, you know, exchanges with students that can be had in Cuba as part of this opening up. So President Dorman at Georgia College went there last year. Provost Brown also went there last year. And it worked. They came back <laughs> very excited about all the opportunities that that could be, you know, opened up to faculty doing research at Georgia College um, and also the students um, and, and their interests there as well. So I definitely think you know, while while the COPLAC group did a fantastic job, it's a signal of, you know, sort of this larger movement by both countries to, to really work together academically. You know, previously, if you wanted to go to Cuba, you had to have a very specific research project that was approved by the university in Cuba and was also approved by the State Department in the United States and just got very complicated and it was challenging. And so I think both groups are excited that you can have academic conversations without necessarily all the the bureaucracy going forward. And I'm just curious, what is the size of the higher education system there in Cuba? Because, of course, um, you talked earlier about uh, these kind of tenets of uh, the socialist government there, uh, one of them being free education. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I guess it it was their system uh, in some context on par with what we have here. Definitely. Um, The universities are are quite sizable. Um, One of the things, you know, to the free education point, if you live in Cuba and make the grades, your education will be free as high up as you want to go. So even into graduate school, your education's covered as long as you're, you know, maintaining a certain grade point average, uh, which is huge when you think about the student debt situation here from student loans that that as long as they're doing well in school, they they don't ever incur any of those. Similarly, there are a lot of cultural institutions there that are fostering, you know, again, these exchanges uh, between the United States and Cuba. The other thing that I was going to say, 
the medical schools there are also top notch. Um, they are Cuba is world renowned for its uh, health care, and that includes its medical colleges. If you come to Cuba and get accepted into the medical school, you're able to come from anywhere in the world. If you complete the school training, the only thing they ask in return is that you return to your home country and serve your local community for two years. And then they consider that sort of your <laughs> your student loan. Um, and so you have thousands of people who apply every year to to come to Cuba and to, to get the medical training there. That's interesting, and I, I can't believe that it took me this long in the conversation to think about that, but there has uh, historically, at least in the later part of the 20th century, been a large Cuban population in Milledgeville, you know, for the mm-hmm. size of the Milledgeville community, because so many doctors um, came to serve at Central State Hospital uh, in the post-revolution years. Absolutely. When doctors were coming from Cuba to the United States, and in, I want to make sure that I put this out there, <laughs> that this is uh, research that Dr. Steve Elliott Gower is currently working on. Um, so what I know, I know from him, and you should all read his book someday. But in essence, as Cubans were traveling to the United States, it wasn't always a guarantee that their medical degrees would get them the same position that they had in Cuba. And so they had to start being a little more creative with what kind of medical practices they would be willing to consider. And so a lot of them actually got into psychiatry and psychology that way. They were able to, to sort of study up and refresh on it quickly and then find jobs pretty quickly, too. And it just happened to coincide with a major time in central states <laughs> history in Milledgeville. And so a lot of them made their way here because they heard that they were hiring Cubans and ended up uh, having a, a really interesting and dynamic uh, community lifestyle here that, again, Dr. Elliot Gower will be speaking to. <laughs> Very excellent. And um, we talked about it, and let's keep it here locally. Now, you talked about, um, of course, you went to Cuba. Uh, Dr. Steve Elliot Gower went to Cuba. Uh, we've also had our president, Dr. Dorman, go and um, Dr. Kelly Brown, the provost. Um, so tell us about some of the educational opportunities that may be opening up here on the Georgia College campus. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been very excited that I am kind of the, the spokesperson or the ringleader for that. It kind of fell in my lap and I, I happily accepted the challenge. Uh, so on a small scale, I'm doing things like this coming semester. I'm offering an upper level class on revolutionary Cuba. Um, it's a history class. In the spring, I'm offering a GC2Y course on Cuba in a global society, which kind of looks at Cuba within the context of its relationships with Africa, with Latin America and the Caribbean, and then also with the United States. And my goal is to start developing a study abroad program. So the International Education Center and headed by Dr. Eric Spears, um, and also with, you know, uh, support from Dr. Steve Elliott Gower, I've been in the process of starting to develop a study abroad program. It's very, uh, It's a lengthy (laughs) process with many sort of check marks you have to make along the way, but I'll be going back this December uh, to to organize the trip with some of the colleagues that I met from my last trip there, and then we'll have a proposal to put together for the International Education Center next spring with the hope of offering it in 2018. So I have to start now, and it's still a little ways away, but it's on the horizon, and I'm working really hard to try to make it happen. Well, and these things that I'm sure... uh well, potentially. When you first came to Georgia College, who knew that this opportunity was you know, ahead of you? Absolutely. No, it's been a wonderful surprise. Well, we're going to take another short break right now. But if you're just joining us, we're talking about Cuba and U.S. relationships, the past, the present, and the future here on Georgia College Connections. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Opperman, and I hope you'll stay tuned as we continue on with the conversation. <music> Thank you. 
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Opperman, and we're talking about the relationship between Cuba and the United States. Well, I just thought that um, as the last question for this interview, I'd ask you if you'd just kind of give us some of your firsthand impressions of Cuba. Just kind of share with our audience what you saw, what you heard down there. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Landing at the airport was interesting <laughs> because it's very small. Um, you think about Havana and you know it's a major cosmopolitan city. And so to have, you know, kind of a, a small airport was just sort of your first indicator. Like, okay, this is this is going to be different and you should just stay open to, to whatever experiences you're going to have. Things like driving on the highway and you see things that look like they're going to be billboards. But as you get closer, you realize that they are never promoting a product or a company or things like that. They are always promoting the, the message of the, the political party. And so things like socialism or death, Che is our model and we should follow him. The U.S. blockade is the greatest genocide in world history. You know, these sort of messages that are, you know, again, official party rhetoric are, are the only uh, billboard kind of things that you'll see, which, you know, is a, a mark towards the, the sort of communist influence, but is also a mark towards acknowledging that, you know, it's really not capitalistic, not, uh, again, product or company based. That's not really how people think about economics or buying products or things like that. So that was a, a, a major difference. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting was talking to some of the graduate students at the University of Havana. That really stuck with me, um, in part because, as I mentioned, they were saying that they don't have these student loans, that they've been able to get through graduate school completely free. Because of that, and because there's not a wide variety in salaries, there's pretty typical range. If you're a professional, you make this much money. They're not basing what they study on how much money they're going to make, right? So they're not becoming a doctor because they want to make more money than becoming a librarian. They're both acknowledging that these are both great positions and just go with the one that you're passionate about. And that's very different than how I think a lot of American students approach college, right? They may have a love of music, but decide to major in marketing, hoping, you know, for a better <laughs> economic situation that may or may not work out, but at least that's kind of the, the thinking behind it. The other part of, of meeting with the students that really stood out to me was that for the most part, as I would talk to to students, you know, they were majoring in literature or in history, but whenever you'd ask them what about literature or history they were excited about, they would always mention the classics. They would always talk about, you know, Greece and Rome, maybe like medieval Europe, something like that. But it was always, you know, really far away. Um, if you've ever taken a class with me, I'm very much a modernist. And so I was sort of like, you're not interested in contemporary stuff at all. Like, what can we talk about that that we have in common? And and I realized in talking to them that it's mostly revolving around limited resources. They don't have, you know, interlibrary loans that span across different countries. They don't have a huge, you know, amount of access to the internet. Getting new materials is always a challenge for them. So when they find things, in order to find things that they're excited to research, they have to go to the library and they have to work with what was there in 1959. And so that really kind of changes <laughs> the whole perspective on things. So as far as, you know, how how Cuba influenced me or, or things that I took away from it, I mean, it's just really sort of trying to understand a little bit more what living with limited resources is like, to learn a little bit more about sort of political messages that are 
ever present. When I would try to ask, you know, students or faculty about politics, they would not really discuss it. Whereas here, you know, it's especially this time of year, you know, it's cocktail party conversation. You talk to people in the grocery store about it. I mean, it's just kind of everywhere. And so where that might be a conversation opener here, there, it just it doesn't go very far. It kind of falls flat pretty quickly. Um, and so all combined, it, it's such a lovely, beautiful place. It's very complex and complicated, which is why it takes a whole semester to teach the, the Revolutionary Cuba class. But it's just absolutely worth going if, if and when you get the chance. Now that there are flights from Atlanta that go directly to Havana, it's, it's looking more and more hopeful. All right. And just to close out our conversation, if you could give some people some guideposts as we you know, rush into these new relations with Cuba, what would you say to them, our, our listening audience or anyone really on this side of, um, you know, that 90 miles between here and Cuba? Mm-hmm. I think the main suggestion that I would have is to be open to dialogue. I think it's very typical as academics, as students, as citizens to want to go and ask questions, but maybe have (laughs) your own ideas and thoughts behind it that might sort of direct the conversation. And I think having access to Cuban scholars, to Cuban students, to Cuban individuals, and just to let them have their voice, I think is really important. They haven't had the dialogue this whole time either. And, you know, there are miscommunications and misperceptions on both sides of the fence and so I think just having an open mind and and listening to what someone's individual experience was actually like, it, I mean, that's good advice for just being a good human too. But um, just keep in mind, you know, act as a global citizen, and I think I think it'll be completely worthwhile. Well, Dr. Stephanie Opperman, thank you very much for bringing this firsthand experience and um, a, a lifetime of knowledge about Cuba to our audience here on Georgia College Connections. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we are talking about the state of relations between the United States and Cuba, the past, the present, and the future. My guest was Dr. Stephanie Opperman. She is an assistant professor of Latin American and Caribbean history at Georgia College. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you spending a portion of your evening with me here on Georgia College Connections. I look forward to convening with you next time.